As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Ladies and gentlemen, the sound you hear is a buzzsaw ripping through a painting of George Washington chopping down cherry trees. It's time for Professor Buzzkill. Busting myths and taking names. Well, well, Buzzkillers, it's the old professor here back again. And, you know, we keep saying on this show, World War II, the run-up to World War II, Nazi Germany, all these things are so full of historical myths, we need to have multiple episodes on them. And last time... Professor Nash was in the bunker talking to us about Hitler's youth, not the Hitler youth, but the rise of Hitler as a young man and as a young politician, all the way up to the point at which he became chancellor. And he's here with us again, not Hitler. (laughs) Professor Nash is here with us again to talk about what happens after that. So Hitler part two, Professor, how are you? I'm doing great. Great to be back in the bunker. It's it's hell out there and I feel safe in here. (laughs) Well, we're going to do a third episode on Hitler all the way up to 1945 and the bunker will take on new uh, meaning. Exactly. We'll have to yield copyright. (laughs) That's right. But it was so fascinating what you were talking about the last time you were here, especially near the end as as you were explaining the myth of Hitler being elected chancellor, the myth, the myth of his seizure of power, and all that sort of stuff right. that happens in in the early 30s. And then, of course, today we want to spring forward and talk about how Nazi Germany functioned and all that sort of stuff. But let's remind the buzzkillers where we were when we last left Herr, Herr Hitler. That's right. Well, Herr Hitler is uh, appointed chancellor by the president of the Weimar Republic, Paul von Hindenburg, uh, at the end of January 1933. And uh, that I was emphasizing how that was entirely constitutional. Yes, which is not what most people think. Right. Uh, the, it's true the Nazi party had the most votes, but it was only in a plural, plurality. Uh, I think in the November 1932 elections, they got something like 33% of the vote. They, they were down a bit, and I argued that that was a reason why he's appointed, because a lot of people around the president sort of jockeying for position argue that the Nazis have peaked and that we, we the conservatives around Hindenburg, can control Hitler from behind the scenes if he is appointed chancellor. Right. And it'll but, be okay if he's chancellor because the cabinet will water him down. Right. But it is incorrect to say that he was elected chancellor. He was not. And it's also incorrect on the other end to say that he seized power. Unless 
you look at the period after January 30th, 1933, where he does systematically dismantle the Weimar democracy and establish a dictatorship. But that, if you want to call that a seizure of power, fine. But he's but, already chancellor by but then, he's so chancellor he's sort of and, working and, within and, his own system. And that is, dis- that is decisive. He's made chancellor. And so from the chancellorship, he can create an environment through things like the Reichstag fire, mm-hmm. taking advantage of that, start to harass his political enemies, uh, essentially rig, an, not really rig an election, but heavily influence an election where they get even more votes and then have, with their conservative allies, have enough votes to pass the so-called Enabling Act, March 1933. Right. Which allows him to pass laws without uh, a majority vote in the Reichstag. That is the decisive step. That clears the way for Hitler to do what he does over the next year, year and a half, mm-hmm. which is systematically dismantle the German democracy. All the things that you usually associate with a democracy are piece by piece, legally, because he doesn't have to have the votes anymore, right. are legally the dismantled. Votes in the Reichstag, yeah. There's a law that outlaws all other political parties except the Nazi party. And then the Reichstag becomes this ridiculous rubber stamp. Where everyone, everyone in the audience is, you know, greeting Hitler with a Hitler salute, and they've got the big Nazi eagle up behind him. You've probably seen some pictures oh, of yeah. this, and we can put those on the on the on the blog. Um, uh, the only labor union allowed is the Reichsarbeitsfront, uh, which is the official Nazi national labor union, which miraculously never goes on strike. <laughs> um, where all forms of communication, including um, advertising, newspapers, and radio, are brought under the control of the Nazi Party, and the, in particular, the there's the Reich's propaganda minister Joseph Goebbels, who becomes a masterful at com- controlling uh, sources of information. And by the way, it's um, might as well mention this now: it becomes illegal to listen to foreign radio broadcast in Nazi Germany. All right. all right, yeah, and they actually had these for a while in the Holocaust Museum in Washington D.C. During World War II, the Gestapo handed out these sort of red cardboard tags, you know, with a hole in them, the kind that you that the, when you're at a hotel they hang it on the doorknob. Like oh yeah, not yeah, yeah. So it's, yeah. One of, it's equivalent to one of those, but it's bright red, and it's basically a warning about the severe penalties, including imprisonment, that come from listening to Fordham radio broadcasts. And they would put that you put you're supposed to put that over the dial of your radio. Oh, Lord. so whenever you turn on the radio, it's like uh, if someone catches you listening to the BBC, and remember the BBC is just across the channel, yeah, and has a very powerful broadcasters. But the, the Nazis, by the way, they also um, issued it was called a Volksempfänger, it was a sort of a people's receiver. They made available these extremely cheap radios that, right. that, everyone, that everyone could afford that had extremely short range. Oh, so they could only get German. So stations. they could only get German stations. Yeah, so that's typical of how Nazi propaganda worked. Um, no. Now, I, I mean, you may not know that you may not know the answer to this because I'm just now remembering it. But I remember that when we were taught about this as as kids in school, that one of the reasons we were taught about kids at school is because our history teacher in elementary school or secondary school, whatever, said that that kids, the Nazis would find out where these where people were listening to foreign broadcasts because the teachers would ask the kids yep. who listened to the the teddy bear picnic show from London on the radio last night. Wasn't it funny? Wasn't it this? Or that? Right. If they raise and their hands, then you go after their parents. Yeah. Yeah. It's fascinating because they did the same thing in East Germany. Right. After world war two in East Germany, uh, they would, um, in grade school, they'd have kids. They, the teacher would ask, draw the test pattern you saw on your TV. Oh, and then they could find out which parents were listening to illegal broadcasts. Now we need to tell the, the millennials and the young buzz killers out there. The <laughs> test, pattern. test pattern is good point. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. TV was not twenty four and seven, and no. when the when the channel is off the air, if you turn on your TV, you get what's, it's a test pattern. It's like a 
sort of multicolored thing that shows you that your picture is is proper, basically. Yeah, you've got your levels adjusted properly. You just right. look like a card with a, a geographic design, but it, it, not but geographic, but, geometric design. Right. But it's something that a lot of totalitarian dictatorships have in common, which is you use children mm. to help control the population. Mm. You see this in Orwell's 1984, by the way. Uh, you right. certainly see it in Stalin's Russia, where you've got the actual cases where kids ratted out their parents. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but that, yeah, that's part of how. So we don't know that that Nazi that that teachers in in Nazi Germany did this. I may be conflating that with stories I was told uh, about I'm, East Germany. I'll be shocked if they didn't, right? Because okay. part of the establishing of dictatorship is uh, the term the Nazis used, and it's a typical Nazi term. Is no good translations Gleichschaltung. The best translation of that word is coordination. Uh-huh. Basically, all institutions in German public life, uh, including education, are right, sort of Nazified. Right, okay. Or sort of coordinated or sort of – Gleichschaltung means sort of like made level. Oh, right, right, right. So in other words, all coordinated, all basically Nazified. And, you know, you didn't have to be a Nazi party member to teach school. But if you were – if they had the slightest indication that you were anti-Nazi, you were fired. That was true of university professors. That was true of school teachers. Um, you know, one of the reasons why Nazi Germany, as we'll see in, in a minute, doesn't work very well is this sort of Nazification. Yeah. Uh because a lot of – if you were even slightly anti-Nazi but a competent official, like a civil servant, you were fired. And you'd be replaced by a Nazi crony. And so then overall the level of performance is going to go down because right, of this right. Nazification. And because you, the, the Nazi crony probably isn't specialized or trained. Exactly or, right. 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 Just, because right okay. of, just because of his early party number or who he knows in the Nazi party. Yeah. So, it, But even though Hitler was able to – uh, pass these laws by fiat on his own mm-hmm. into this new thing. How does he? How is he able to build up this dictatorship? In in, in I guess the, as 1933 is flowing along. Um, well, because he has so much popular support okay. for one All thing, right. and that's another. I guess we should sort of get into this. Um, what what I would call the myth of the purely tyrannical dictatorship. Because right. I think if you ask a lot of people today, well, why did so many people go along with Hitler? I think the instinctive reaction would be, well, people had no choice. Mm-hmm. People were people were terrified. People were just following orders. Right. That's the big phrase. And of course, you hear and see a lot of that because that's what a lot of people said after World War II, right? Especially like when you get to the 1960s and you've got a younger generation of Germans who say, wow, like mom and dad, how could you put up with that? How did you go along? And often the easy answer is, well, we had no choice. If we If we resisted, if we didn't go along... We'd be in trouble. We'd be put in jail. We'd be killed, whatever. Now, it's a sort of a half-truth. I mean, you certainly had – this was a regime that relied on terror. This was a regime that didn't observe any rules. They could arrest you without charge, not give you a lawyer, make you disappear indefinitely, uh, torture you, kill you without any repercussions. But the extent to which that actually happened has been – exaggerated oh no kidding okay and uh it's pretty clear that a lot of people after the war are making excuses and exaggerating the extent to which this regime relied on terror and there are then there's sort of there are there are two aspects to this one is that hitler from all indications was genuinely popular right okay it's pretty clear for example that after 1933 and based on the apparent performance of the regime Mm-hmm. That he's winning additional converts. In other words, people who didn't vote for him during the fair elections of 1930, 1932, mm-hmm. come around to embracing him because he seems to be delivering on his basic promises. Oh, okay. 
Germany, in terms of employment, right? German, Nazi Germany improves pretty quickly. He promises to put Germans back to work, and he largely does. Now, a lot of this would not have been sustainable in the long term. Right. A lot of this, by the way, was sort of New Deal-style public works projects, like building the Autobahn, things like that. I mean, they, they sunk a lot of, they borrowed and printed a lot of money, and then put it basically dumped it into infrastructure projects, which put a lot of people back to work. He's also solving unemployment, especially after 1935, by rebuilding the Wehrmacht by drafting literally millions of young men into the army. Right. And so that's one way to solve your unemployment problem, which the United States did not have at its disposal. Right, right. Um, but, you know, remember, in the election campaigns, the, the free election campaigns, he's promising bread and work. And by 1935, 1936, it's pretty clear he has delivered. Yeah. And it's and what, easy to gain support when you're filling people's right. bellies and you're giving them jobs. And a yeah. lot of people are going to say, sure, there are things I don't like about him. This regime has some really sort of rough edges to it. I, maybe I'm not impressed by Hitler personally, but I have a job now mm -hmm. and I'm proud of my country again. Because mm -hmm. there is this nationalism aspect. Remember, he, he promises, it's, there's a foreign policy aspect. He promises to sort of get Germany out from under the shadow of the Versailles Treaty. The pain of which was exaggerated, and I think historians sort of recognize that today, that that peace was not nearly as punitive as Germans believed it was. Right, not the nearly, peace put on by the Allies. Right, and it, it included territorial losses and, you know, restriction of the German military, and they lost their overseas colonies, and they were supposed to pay all these reparations, et cetera. It was sort of painful and humiliating. The, over, the loss of the overseas colonies may have saved them money in the long run. I'm oh, absolutely. Sure that they were, yeah, yeah. They were, no, like a lot yeah. of people, a lot of yeah. imperial powers, those were sinkholes, like French Indochina was for the French. Um, but, you know, a, a lot of Germans, and a lot of Germans are nationalists. A lot of non-Nazis uh, are nationalists who want to feel proud of their country again, which they haven't felt since World War One, And so and they, they have a job now and they're proud of their country again. And so and the slogan for the Nazis could have been, we're making Germany we're great again. Making, <laughs> could very well have been. <laughs> no, no baseball caps, of course, but <laughs> but that's that's what they would have done. And, I'm, and I've seen this argument. I think it's very plausible. It's, it's a what-if argument. But let's say Hitler is assassinated in 1938, which, by the way, almost happened. Because this lone guy in Munich planted a bomb. It, was, it may have actually been in a beer hall. To check that. There's constant beer. That I know. It's uh, all, all roads lead to beer. Um, <laughs> the Nazis and beer. Uh, this guy planted a really big bomb that was supposed to go off when Hitler was giving a speech. And for some reason, we don't still don't know, Hitler left the speech 10 minutes early. The bomb went off. He would have been eviscerated by this bomb, by the way. But uh, he was a difficult target for assassins. Because he, because he was un unpredictable. In any case, uh, let's, say, let's say he's killed in 1938. Pretty confident that his, history would have recorded him as as an authoritarian, yep, unpleasant guy. Obviously, anti-democratic. Punishes a lot of his uh, opponents, some of whom are sort of roughed up or killed. But apart from that, pretty effective leader who sort of brought Germany back. And I, I think I think some even even some liberal historians would have to sort of grudgingly agree to that. Now, but this the Holocaust hasn't started by the in, in yeah, full force, right? Persecution of the Jews has certainly right. started, but yeah, 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 the, yeah, yeah but killing, yeah, yeah, but they're not right. rounding up and killing Jews. That happens during World War II. Um, so, I mean, and when, I'm not, and I'm, I'm, let's be clear, I'm not doing that to defend Hitler or oh, at no, all no, mitigate no. his crimes. No. What I'm doing is explaining the fact that you have someone who is, by all accounts, a truly popular dictator. 
And afterwards, a lot of people who really liked him are dishonest about how much they liked him. Okay. And you see this elsewhere. You see this with what I call the sound of music myth, yep. which is the idea that that was a hostile takeover of Austria. You can go online and you can oh, watch the yeah. footage of him rolling into Vienna and he was, he was given the Elvis treatment. Yeah. It was, it was the, here's the hometown boy come back and made good. We're hundreds of thousands of people screaming, crying, throwing flowers at him, giving him the Hitler salute. Yeah. The idea oh, that yeah. they were somehow victims of the Nazis, right? Which you sort of see in the sound of music, unfortunately, by the way, there were anti-Nazi Austrians. They were, yeah, anti-Nazi, sure, they were sure. anti-Nazis everywhere, but he had lots of support among ethnic Germans everywhere. And it's partly because he seemed to be delivering on his promises. Right. Okay. So it wasn't in the, 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 Nazi supporters in Austria wasn't because of this story of his Austrian youth and things like that. No, I mean, Austrian birth. I mean, there there was an element of that, that, yeah. that you know, a lot of, you know, by the way, there's something else that was forbidden by Versailles was the Anschluss, was the merger of Germany and Austria. Yes, that's right. Yeah. Um, but a lot of... Because the other powers were worried that that's too big powerful countries too, merging exactly, together. Exactly, too and, big and powerful a country. Which is exactly what it does, yeah. which is exactly what happens. Yeah. But uh, a lot of the Austrians really, they were sort of proud of the fact that he was a native Austrian mm-hmm. and who is now running the most powerful country in the world as they saw it. But uh, so there is a lot of genuine popularity in this regime, even though it's a dictatorship, even though it runs partly on terror. There are a lot of people who become committed Nazis because they believe in what Hitler's doing. Well, and, that's certainly a different and story. And, and so they're e- e- either willing to take part in the abuses yeah. or much more commonly willing to look the other way during the abuses because they think it's sort of a net win. In other words, you put up with the quote-unquote rough ed- edges of this regime because of all the good things you're getting out of it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, you know, they were very clever with their use of propaganda. You know, they set up vacations for the working class. Oh, yeah, vacation the, camps, yeah. I mean, and and there was, there was, there was what was it called? Uh, Kraft durch Freude, uh, typically Nazi strength through joy. Yeah, yeah. In yeah. other words, you can never just have fun for fun's sake. It's got to be for a purpose, <laughs> like you know, bodybuilding. Uh, but they had uh, you know the um, the Volkswagen, the people's car. Yeah, yeah. That was called the KD, yeah. KDF Wagen. Those are the strength through joy. Oh, wagon. No yeah, yeah. Oh, the, oh, now they never actually mass produced those because this thing called World War II came along. Yeah, yeah. But um, in fact, I think you had a. Yeah, we had we, we had destroyed a, the Hitler invented the Volkswagen. Right. Yes, yes. He was not As an, if he was he was not an automotive engineer. engineer. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> he was the engineer in, of all these other things in Nazi Germany, but not the cars. Yeah, Hitler didn't invent the Volkswagen, and Churchill didn't invent the tank. But the Nazis <laughs> were also uh, masters at public spectacle and of making oh right of yeah, mobilizing yeah. the public. In other words, it's not just them destroying the institutions of democracy. It's replacing them with sort of Nazi versions of institutions that make people believe they're part of something larger than themselves. And you see that in the 36 Olympics. The- you see it in the 36 Olympics. You see it in sort of the Hitler Youth and the and its its female equivalent, the Bund Deutscher Mädel, uh, League of German Girls, where from a young age, you're, part of it is indoctrination, but part of it is to make you feel part of something larger than themselves. It's why the Nazis are constantly staging these sort of torchlight parades. Mm. Um, you know, the, the Nazi party rallies that are made famous by Lenny Riefenstahl's movie Triumph of the Will, where Hitler, by the way, literally descends from the clouds yeah. like yeah. a god in that yeah. movie. Um, yeah. the, the, so the, uh, Technologically the, brilliant filmmaking, but yes, also but ideologically repugnant. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. By the way, um, he was so impressed with that that she didn't go on to make that many more movies. She made the Olympiad, right? She made right. the one about the 36th Olympics. Which was a lot less Nazified That's in right. terms of tone. But you didn't, 
you didn't have as big of a German film industry as you might have otherwise because Hitler was so impressed with her early work. It's like, well, like we can't do any better than this, so like, why bother? Like, oh, oh, oh. Yeah, rather, like, well, that's interesting. Rather yeah. than saying, let's keep it going, he right. says, no, we've, no so we, he's, we've done it. I mean, now you have a German film industry. Yeah, sure. But uh, he's a lot of the films he's watching are from Hollywood. In any case, right. so you have a lot of sort of public um, willing participation in this regime. Mm-hmm. And that, so now, for, for example, even though you, you may not be a committed anti-Semite, yeah. you put up with and go along with the anti-Semitism or look the other way as your Jewish neighbors are being persecuted because of all these other good things you perceive as coming from the regime. Right. Okay, and I think that's a real important uh, concept. Uh, the other, uh, the and if this is the majority of the of if you will, even if the voting population, that's a very big deal. Absolutely, yeah, yeah, yeah. Because yeah. remember, he and in, in fair elections, he never gets more than thirty seven percent of the vote. Yeah, he's pretty clearly getting more than that in terms of either support or sort of tolerance. Right after right, nineteen thirty three, right. as he establishes a dictatorship. Um, but the Nazis were were very clever, and uh, you know, and it, to the to a ridiculous level. Like, if you wanted to have put together, I don't know, like a chess club, yeah. all those organizations down to the grassroots have to be officially approved by the Nazi mm-hmm. Party. And so then you're constantly being, for example, you join the Hitler Youth. Yeah, yeah you do sports and you go for hikes, but you also get sort of uh, rudimentary basic training. Yep, from, and you're basically yeah. grooming people for the army. Mm-hmm. You're you're grooming people to follow orders without question, mm. right? To be on the lookout for people who aren't uh, going along with the regime, including maybe your parents, right? <laughs> so God. you know, and you got to be careful with that argument too, because you still see people. Well, they were brainwashed. Yeah. Once you use that word, you are lifting any responsibility from them. And one of my basic messages would, would here would be that the responsibility has to be shared much more widely than a lot of Germans would be comfortable in admitting. Right. And we use the term brainwashed too easily and quickly to be yes. actually brainwashed where you're incapable of, or where, where right. your own individual motivation is taken away from you is a very rare thing yeah. and, and, and involves a lot of intense personal individual brainwashing. Yes. These are all people who experience democracy. They yeah, lived right. in uh, – a lot of them in Imperial Germany, which was a cultural and scientific center. Right, right. German culture, you know, produces Bach and Beethoven yeah. oh, and yeah. Mozart. And, you know, then all of a sudden you support this murderous regime. So what's yeah. going on here? You, there's there's got to be some pretty complicated processes. But another important part of how this regime actually functions on a daily basis is that there's a huge amount of cooperation and complicity, including in the terror and okay. in the tight control. And, you know, I keep coming back to it, but the, um, this BBC series, uh, Hitler, A Warning from History, is very good on this. Oh, that's the one you mentioned last time. Yes. I'm yeah. oh, sorry. Yes, I no, mentioned no, it okay. last yeah. time. Yeah. Yep. Um, Which is on the Buzzkill, uh, Buzzkill bookshelf. There's, a, there's an episode that talks about the sort of pre-war, sort of this period, 1933-39. I think it's called Chaos and Consent, mm-hmm. which is a nice little tagline because the regime was very chaotic. In, oh, right. In its actual functioning, despite the public picture it created. Oh, because it's supposed to be super efficient. Not at all. Oh. Uh, we can get to that in a minute, don't, yeah. but, so don't let me forget that. But uh, in terms of complicity, it's got a, it's a great segment where they, the advancing American army at the end of World War II actually captured intact a whole sort of tranche of uh, Gestapo documents, most of which were destroyed by the Nazis as they retreated. Right, right. In the town of Würzburg, which is in southern Germany. They, they captured intact the entire set of Gestapo files. And so now historian, historians like Robert Galately, who's in the video, they, they've gone through it. 
this region of Würzburg had a million people. And in the files, they discovered that to police that million people, the Gestapo, the Geheime Staatspolizei, the secret state police, these are the plain clothes guys who have don't need warrants. They knock on the door in the middle of the night. They have higher informants. For that, for that entire Würzburg region of a million people, they had 28 Gestapo officers. Oh, <laughs> well. And so, and that's important because I think a lot of people and a lot of Germans would argue, well, you know, they were on every street corner. They were everywhere. They were tapping everyone's phones, opening everyone's mail. They were everywhere. And you like, everywhere you looked, you're being watched. So you have to be really careful. Not even close to being true. Yeah, sure. 28 yeah. people. And these 28 people were not sort of James Bond, secret, <laughs> secret agent types. Yeah, yeah. They're clerks, most of right. them. Right. Oh, sure. Yeah. And filing uh, reports. Filing but, reports. Yeah. And not just that, but Galately makes the important point. A lot of their work is sitting back and processing denunciations. Oh, In really? other words, Germans on their own ratting each other out. Okay, so... And, and so complaining Joe to goes, the Gestapo. My neighbor, as, as they say in the video, uh, my neighbor doesn't uh, is very suspicious. She doesn't greet me with the Hitler greeting when I see her in the morning. Ah. And I think she may be a lesbian. And I think she may be hanging out with Jews. And maybe you should keep an eye on her. And by the way, that particular woman ended up dead in a concentration camp because she didn't fit in. Right. So the, so the Gestapo is not out there in their black, long black leather coats. Because they, they don't have to be. Right. They're sitting in the office. The, the evidence is the evidence. The stories are coming to them. Right. And can this, otherwise good In Germans. other words, this is, and this is, this is not just a Nazi Germany thing. This is a human thing. Yeah. Oh, right? sure. What sure. happens when you sort of lift the, the sort of the, what turns out to be a thin veneer of civilization yeah. and let people sort of go at each other? They're going to settle scores. They're going to take advantage of the situation, and you're basically competitive denunciations. And so then Gestapo's job is not to go out and find bad guys. It's to sift through all this paper that's coming in through no work of theirs to find out which are legit and which aren't. Wow. Who, should we, who, we, who we should arrest and who we shouldn't. And that's how you control a million people with 28 people. Is that it turns out you can do it with 28 people because a lot of those million people are going to do your work for you. Yeah, they're like little Gestapoettes. So, and that I think would fundamentally throw into question the way a lot of people understand the way Nazi Germany functioned. It was not it, not entirely, not even close to being entirely a top-down phenomenon, mm -hmm. but also a bottom-up phenomenon. Oh wow! And they don't even have to worry about. Right. being hyper-efficient right. if you, the populace you is just, doing your work you for just, you. You just make it clear what the sort of incentives and disincentives are of this new system, and then you yeah. sit back and let it work because a lot of people, maybe even unknowingly, yeah. will do your work for you. You, yeah. don't, you, don't, you don't have to actively terrorize people because they're going to passively terrorize themselves. Wow. Oh, that's a, that's a very important line. You're not going to act, they'll passively terrorize themselves. Right. right. Yeah. Wow. And so, and that, and this is really important because like I said, we focus so much on Hitler's biography. In effect, we let off the hook millions of rank and file Germans mm -hmm. who are, who are absolutely crucial to making this system function. Right. That's one aspect to it. Another. So, so let me just, yeah, say, sorry. I, I'm, because I'm so interested in politics and elections, it's, it's fascinating to me that th this is working also in a system where the Nazis don't or at least originally in the in the thirty two and thirty three elections, don't get you know they get thirty percent of right, the vote. They don't, or have, don't have majority support, but it doesn't matter. Later on, it doesn't matter because they've got majority snitches. Right, exactly. Right, right. people sort Ugh. of acting between elections and not at elections. Right. By the way, they, the Nazis do have an elections and plebiscites, but they're a joke. I mean, liter yeah, sure, literally, after, right. the, the ballot will say yes or no. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I, and, you know, it sounds hilarious, but it's true. Like, for example, do you support the Anschluss with Austria? Yes or no? Oh, look at all the yes votes we got. Yeah. Yeah. So right, I mean that's so they they had these sort of sham elections, right, 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 um, and sort of these popularity contests. But the other thing in terms of 
the way the, the regime on its inside worked is also more complicated. I think a lot of people would assume that Hitler is this sort of uh, omnipotent dictator and nothing happens without him knowing or with him mm -hmm. showing initiative. Um, people like Ian Kershaw are very good on this, with this concept of what was called working towards the Fuhrer. Right. In other words, within the regime, initiative often comes from below from mid and lower level functionaries who basically try to anticipate what they think Hitler will like. All and, then right. they, and then they float a trial balloon. And then they'll quickly find out whether it was something good or bad because it'll be either sure. sort of picked up and run with or it'll be shot down. But, and this would include things like the infamous uh, T4 program where the Nazis were killing sort of mentally and physically disabled people. Right, right. Even before World War II. The initiative for that did not come from Adolf Hitler. He signed off on it. Mm -hmm. doesn't mean he's not responsible for it, because if you didn't want it to happen, it wouldn't happen. This, this gets into the whole Holocaust thing. But the initiative for it comes with people basically jockeying for position. Uh, they want to be seen as the bright boy. They, right, up. because think about it. And you see that this is sort of organizational behavior. If you've got yeah. two people, just sort of two Dilberts sitting next to each other in their cubicles, who's going to get ahead? The one who sits back and waits for instructions or the one who has a spare moment and starts brainstorming how to solve the next problem? Yeah, 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 and that it's sort of, it's sort of that phenomenon within the Nazi Party, and it's people taking advantage of the fact that by design it's a chaotic system. The Nazis always and Nazis and Germans always get this reputation for being super efficient, super highly organized, etc. Yeah. To the extent that you saw that in the Third Reich and in the army, that was not because of the Nazis; it was in spite of the Nazis. Oh, so the, they were very the good. Thing at, is a myth, the efficiency the, and the, the idea. The idea of sort of well, and you know the famous uh, you know Mussolini making the trains run on time, oh, yeah, that that's sort of thing. Terrible, yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah, a lot of these dictatorships have this reputation, and people end up defending them. It's like, yeah, sure, it's a dictatorship, yeah. but look how efficient it was. And the Nazis were brilliant at creating that impression. That's part mm -hmm. of the that's part of the spectacle. All the marches and the ni nice, neat ranks of people and the sort of the drill order procession. You're supposed to say, wow, and by the way, we don't have all the chaos on the streets anymore. We don't have the street battles between communists and Nazis because all the communists are either driven out of the country or in concentration camps, yeah. and we don't have all these street brawls. And, and you know, a lot of Germans do like order, and the Nazis seem to deliver that. Behind the scenes, it's an absolute mess. Hitler, one of the la laziest dictators ever. Oh, no This kidding. is a guy who, like Stalin, by the way, watches movies until 4 or 5 a.m., crashes, doesn't get up until noon. You know, hates meetings, hates paperwork, um, not at all sort of on a daily basis, not in charge. Really? Uh, yeah. In other words, not sort of, he's not a very much a hands-on dictator on a day-to-day -day basis. And by the way, be very careful with that argument. Right, right, right It doesn't right. mean he's not responsible. Right, right, right. But what he does is partly to preserve, in fact, largely to preserve his own power, and the other dictators have done this, is you deliberately have a messy organizational chart. So that all of your underlings are at each other's throats, jockeying for position. Oh, yes, I've heard this from, yeah. This goes on throughout the Third Reich and through the very end of World War II, where, for example, ask yourself this, who's Hitler's number two? Is it, is it Goering or is it not, Goebbels? Is it, you don't not know. Not entirely clear, and no, that's no, no, no. not an accident. Oh, and, okay, you know, and okay. some people like Martin Bormann, who's like a head of, he's like his yeah. personal secretary or head of the head of the party chancellor, I should say, he's not a very powerful person, ends up being super powerful. Right, someone like Himmler, his power grows and grows and grows until the very, very end. Hmm. Goering, his his power is big and then declines a lot. Hmm. So you you know people go up, people go down, but they are deliberately you know assigned two people to the same job. 
Huh. Because that ensures, among other things, that they're not going to be coming after yours. Right. Because they're right, going after each right. other's. And they have to come to you to resolve whatever problems there are. And therefore, Ex- you're in Exactly. And puts you in the driver's seat. Absolutely true. And it's sort of dictatorship 101. Well, I need to rethink how I run the Institute then because <laughs> uh, we do it very efficiently, but the, maybe I... Does this mean I, start, I need to start looking for another bunker? Yeah, that's right. Yeah. <laughs> but that's all by design. And, but the problem is it's, it's the opposite of efficient. Yeah, right? yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, you, you but, have but it's purposeful. All, you, exactly. They do it that it's way. Purposeful, purposeful, but you have all this wheel spinning, all this backbiting, all these people jockeying for position, reaching out for allies, stabbing each other in the back, trying to create oh. a new job and putting your person in that job. And this is this percolates all the way down through the hierarchy. And so, uh, people like Kershaw, I, I'm, I'm assuming he does this. I forget. Ian Kershaw, the Ian, historian. Ian Kershaw. I think people like him would be shocked that Nazi Germany functioned as well as it did, yeah. knowing how it actually functioned. In other words, a lot, to the extent that it's effective, it's in spite of the Nazis, not because of them, hmm. on sort of a daily basis. Hmm. That's absolutely fascinating. Well, that's a huge myth destroyed right there. Yeah. Yeah. I, right. And, you know, and part of it is you look at the performance of the Wehrmacht that does it, they do so well for so long against overwhelming odds in World War II. Yeah. And I think people. The sort of, army, yeah. Yeah. Uh, well, the armed forces in general. Armed forces, yeah. Particularly the army. And, you know, and then it becomes, wow, Nazi Germany was really well run. Or you look at the production triumphs of Albert Speer late in the war. Right. Where, where like wiping out their factories and still air, aircraft production goes up and up and up. Huh. So they do, I mean, there are pieces you can point to and say, wow, they're doing something right. Yeah. But imagine how much more, how much harder it would have been to bring down Nazi Germany if it was actually well run. Right. Wow. And if Hitler wasn't, you know, either being too hands off or as we'll see too much of a micromanager. Right. This is entirely uh, myth busting because this is the way right. people have explained it, but it's also the way they've kind of justified why the war had to be so hard because the, because Nazi Germany was a machine. Right. It was on. It was non-human, and right. we had to. And, and, and here's how we links. explain our own failures, by the well, way. Right. Exactly. Right. Yeah. 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 But no, I think uh, if you look behind the scenes, if you look at the sort of day-to-day administration and governance of, the, of Nazi Germany, it was pathetic. It wow. was an absolute mess, huge inefficiency, huge wastage of effort, huge failures to deliver right, left, and center. Yeah. And you know the fact that they delivered or apparently delivered on some of the big things got them a lot of sort of leeway. Yeah, yeah. But um, you know, this is not a regime that was going to function in the long term. It, in a way, it was sort of saved by the war. Hmm. In terms of its actual hmm. if, uh, efficacy, but uh, yeah, the, the idea of an, this was an orderly dictatorship is a myth. But does does any of that kind of filter down? Do people notice that, and therefore does Hitler lose popularity or anything like? How does, how does he how does he retain I this popularity? I think a lot of people don't have a sense of that, uh-huh. of that actually happening. In other words, they successfully conceal it. Right, so right. A lot right. of this is like all the jockeying for position is all behind the scenes. Yeah, yeah, sure. Well, in public, they all line up behind Hitler. You know, in Hitler, you know, they all have official titles and there's a certain apparent logic to it. Mm-hmm. And, you know, like if, if, if something in the economy goes wrong, you can blame Goering because he's the plenipotentiary of the four-year economic plan and that sort of thing. Yeah, right? yeah. You, right? Right. It's, the, the, the idea that you can distance Hitler from his underlings, that's always there. But I think uh, this, this was successfully hidden and people were dazzled by the public spectacle and by the appearance of order. Okay, and so is that? Does that help explain Hitler's continuing popularity yes. through the thirties? Yeah, I'm pretty sure about that. Absolutely. Huh. Yep. Yeah, I think if you had had a fair election around 1937, he would have won. 
1930s. Okay, so right. there, there is if, if there somehow is a Nazi right, right, in right, okay. right. It, it, it's a it's a ridiculous counterfactual, but if 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 you somehow had a fair election with other parties, yeah, sort of you and observers, exactly, <laughs> right, exactly. You know, and legitimate parties that were funded and could advertise and everything. Uh-huh. He he probably would have genuinely won that election because he seemed to be. Remember, people associated the collapse, the economic collapse, with the Democratic parties and the democracy. Right. They, and then, yeah, they, they and won then, that propaganda battle, yeah. Right. And so now our army's getting bigger and our enemies are sort of easing up on all the restrictions from Versailles, right? Yeah. Hitler, Hitler is sort of playing his international enemies time after time. Yeah. And I have a job now and yeah. I can hold my head high and I'm, I'm a productive member of society again and I can thank Hitler for that. Well, the, th- the thing you just mentioned about international enemies is, is also fascinating because – on the one hand, I can understand why, and I think the buzzkillers can understand why why Hitler and the Nazis could, in effect, fool the Germans, make it look as super efficient. All this that happens a lot in, sure. in politics. But he does have these diplomatic and these sort of expansionist triumphs across Europe, and and you would think that his ability to do this with smoke and mirrors would would crumble once a lot of other countries right. are involved. Well, and those are great powers that he doesn't control. Right. Well, right? exactly. Right? Yeah. They're, so how they're does, free agents. How yeah. is he able to convince well, them? Well, um, I mean, he starts – well, first of all, he, would, he withdraws from the League of Nations in the first year he's in power, which is not right. a huge deal probably because the League of Nations was not a very effective So we're still talking 33, 34. 33, or, exactly. 35 is really the key year. Uh-huh. 35 is when he openly violates the Versailles Treaty and gets away with it. Okay. He creates a, a, starts to create a very large army mm-hmm. in, in gross violation of the Versailles Treaty. The Versailles Treaty limited the Germans to a, an army of 100,000. Wow. That's which, tiny, which, tiny, it tiny. Was, it was barely bigger than the Prussian police force. Wow. Uh, so that's a huge violation right there. Um, what else? He, he gets uh, basically limits on his navy – Overturned with the Anglo-German naval the naval agreement, mm-hmm. 1935. That same year, uh, the key year, really, though, for German expansion is 1936, when he remilitarizes the Rhineland. Okay, now the Rhineland is between Germany and between between the Rhine and the western borders. Right. So between France and Belgium and the Rhine River. So it's the extreme western part of Germany, which was occupied by the French army under the Versailles Treaty. Right, and of course is now in theory, should scare the pants off the French and the Belgians. It ought to. Um, one of the reasons that the Allies let this happen was that this was German territory. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And by the way, really rankled Germans, including people who weren't Nazis. The fact yeah, that you yeah. had a semi-permanent foreign occupation, yeah. including black colonial French troops, which drive the Germans racist. Nuts. Racist Germans. Yeah, sure, nuts. sure. It was a big, big part of Nazi propaganda. Uh, but Hitler, very bold, this is March 1936. Mm-hmm. He decides to march his still tiny army into the Rhineland, so-called remilitarizing it. Yeah, it's a key moment. Had the British or French, the British or the French, um, resisted militarily, it could have led to the collapse of Hitler's regime, and and and, and, and we wouldn't be having this conversation right yeah. now. Yeah. <laughs> uh, uh, by the way, to give you some indication of how bold this was, German generals were not on board for this. They thought this was insane because they'll be wiped out. We'll be wiped out. It's yeah. like the, the, if the if the French resistance militarily will be crushed. Yeah, because the French only have to send one division or two divisions, and we're done. Yeah. And exactly, and a lot of German generals are like, "Wow, this guy! What are we doing following this guy?" Anyway, and is so, but is it is this part also part of the you know we should let let him have this and he'll it, it, it the claims on it are sort of legit mm-hmm. and and we're, we're we feel a little bit guilty about what's happened with Versailles, particularly so with the British. Yeah, uh, partly what's going big picture what's going on here is the British and the French don't agree on how just Versailles was. Right, French think it was super just. The British almost immediately have qualms about it. Right, 
and Hitler is very key at sort of exploiting that difference among mm -hmm. the two powers who are in best position to stop him. That's part of it. Another part yeah. of it is it's German territory. Right, right. They're, they're just moving troops around on German territory. Yeah. How, how upset can you be about that? But really the big factor here, and not only here, but also going forward through Munich, is that- Munich Britain, in 38, the Munich- Yeah, sorry. Uh, yeah. Is that, the remember, France and Britain are both democracies. Right. Healthy majority of, of those people. Remember, this is uh, not even 20 years after the end of World War One. Yeah. A war in which 1.3 Frenchmen, 1.3 million Frenchmen lost their lives. Yeah. Something like 900,000 British people. This was the worst disaster that any of these people could remember by a mm -hmm. mile. These publics wanted to avoid another war. Yeah, and you can understand that very perfectly hard. understandable. I mean, especially in America, we were very, I think, way too quick to sort of heap scorn on people like Neville Chamberlain yeah. as these sort of hopeless appeasers who paved the way for Hitler, which they did. Yeah, but let's remember these are democratically elected leaders. Yeah. Whose people tell them over and over again, "I'm not giving up my my one remaining son," right, to protect part of Germany from another part of Germany. Right, 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 right. Or later on to protect part of Czechoslovakia, and as Chamberlain essentially says, "Who I mean, who in Britain can even find that on a map?" Exactly. Yeah. So are those worth going to war? Right. In each instance, is that worth going to war? No. How about that? No. No. Yeah. yeah. And, and these I, are people who know what the effect, those effects of war right. are. Right. Yeah. They, 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 the Western Front was a nightmare. You, yeah. you did your best to wipe out an entire generation of your fittest young men for essentially nothing, as a yeah. lot of them, as a lot of them viewed it. Yeah, yeah, sure. Yeah. Right. Despite all the alleged war aims, it was, it was a futile meat grinder. And here's, here's the great advantage that Hitler has in this sort of pre World War II diplomacy mm -hmm. is that he's willing to risk war and his opponents aren't. Yeah, and that gives him an advantage that you cannot buy, and that that's that's the maniacal thinking. Right, you know, he's willing to go all the way. And at this point, when it could have been pretty easily nipped in the bud, it wasn't. And then look what happens. Right now, Hitler's yeah. generals see that his gamble paid off. Yeah, and a lot of them are say, "Wow, maybe he's not just this sort of loser bohemian corporal. Maybe he actually knows what he's doing. Maybe he understands his opponents better than we do." And I think that is part of Hitler's genius. Yeah, is that he understands what he's up against, mm. and his opponents not so much, and and the generals are looking and saying, "Well, now we're a world power again, right?" And that's a big thing. Well, and also we got away with that. Now we're encouraged to get away with something else, right? Yeah. Which, of course, is the whole flaw of the appeasement policy. Mm -hmm. The whole appeasement policy, which is, and by the way, in case you want to be clear, what that is, you you give Hitler what he wants. To avoid war, you give Hitler his his initial request, the Rhineland or right. the, or the whatever it may be at the moment. By the way, yeah. at every stage, Hitler is signaling that his demands are limited. Yeah, he makes promises like, "Well, give me this, and I'll may, I'll be good afterwards." Yep, yep. And then you've got Western allies who want to believe that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because they want to avoid war. They don't so want you, to lose another million people. So, yeah. and that's why you know Chamberlain comes back from Munich, September nineteen thirty eight. Mm -hmm. Waving that piece of paper and saying, I believe we have peace in our time. He, like a lot of people, believe that Hitler's goals are limited. Yeah. They weren't. No. But Hitler lied about it and they believed him. Yeah. And, but also, the, there, there's an argument made at that time that, look, Hitler's goals are limited because he'd be crazy to go any further than exactly. this. Exactly. Right. Right. We can sort of understand the Sudetenland right. argument. We can understand the Rhineland argument. But he's not going to invade Belgium. Yeah. He's not going to invade Poland. That would be suicide. I know. And I'll, I'm well, sure. Right. Well, it was kind of, but yeah. there is also some projections. Like Germany lost 2 million people in World War One. 
Right. Yeah, Hitler yeah, fought yeah. in World War One. Surely he couldn't be crazy enough to for at least to leave a war. Right. But when he starts, you know, rattling his saber, and you've got a choice: we can have a repeat of World War One, or we can give him this what's what is to us at the end of the day. We won't admit it, but at the end of the day, an insignificant piece of real estate. Yeah. yeah. That's a small price to pay to avoid a war. Which, by the way, we're not very well equipped to, to start to, to yeah. start in any case, right? Mm. Mm. Um. The French had sunk a lot of their uh, sort of interwar money into the Maginot Line, which mm-hmm. turns out to be a pretty useless sort of battleship on land, protecting them against the Germans. B- the British, they were they were racked by the by the depression like anybody else. Their army, well, their navy was still fine, but their army and their air force were not what they sh- should have been if you're going to con- try and confront Hitler. Yeah. So you have you have your sort of uh, your military inability and your your desire to avoid war as your sort of highest value. Yeah, so you go along and you sort of hope it works out. Well, so it seems as if Hitler is able to, like, create this myth of an efficient domestic economy, efficient new domestic economy, efficient new domestic country. He has this huge popularity that's that's feeding that along. And he's able to snow or convince or bulldoze, whatever, right. all these other foreign leaders. This seems like tremendously successful uh, statesmanship. Sure. What, are, what are the sort of weaknesses and mistakes in this early part before that war actually breaks out yeah well in hitler's rule right well i think one of the big mistakes is is that even from his own standpoint he is too open to war Mm -hmm. prematurely because one of the things that that always has surprised me about munich uh is that you know he he, the Munich conference it's it's a crisis because after he annexes austria in march of 1938 yeah he's trying to get he's trying to annex the sudetenland right which is the ethnic german sort of c-shaped border area between on the in in czechoslovakia that that borders germany it was heavily ethnic german nazi propaganda sort of plays it up how these people are abused by the czechs which of course was a lie yeah and he says this is what i want you give me this otherwise i'm going to go to war he at munich he gets what he wants in return for what turns out to be a completely empty promise not to go to war, or, 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 or and a promise not to have any more sort of expansion at other people's right, expense, right, right, right. Um, he gets the Sudetenland privately after the deal is concluded. He feels cheated because oh. he, because he didn't get his war. Oh, he wanted the Sudetenland and the war. Yeah. Oh. In other words, oh. in other words, when he says I'm willing to risk war, he's not bluffing. he's not bluffing. Wow, he he, he I mean, he, and that's really important because remember, oh yeah, people he's up against, like British and French people, they look at World War One as a horrible thing. He looks back on World War One and sees sort of the greatest moments of his life that ended tragically because of the November criminals, but that doesn't mean it wasn't a great cause. War, he he's an he's sort of old school. The war is ennobling. War, by the way, plays into his social Darwinism. Yeah. War is how you prove which society deserves to survive and which doesn't. Um, and, you know, the following year in 1939, when he, he turns on his next target, and by the way, to his chagrin, the Allies and their appeasement policy, I should fill in the, the blanks here. Uh, fall of 1938, Munich Conference, Sudetenland yeah. is given to Germany. Hitler says, I'm not interested in anything else. I'm just interested in uniting all ethnic Germans. And by the way, this historically, this is the so-called the German problem. So you have, yeah, yeah. You have oh, ethnic yeah. Germans who live outside of Germany's borders. And I'm just going to bring them all sort of Heimensreich. I'm going to bring them in home into the, into the, the, greater, the greater German Reich. Uh, March of 1939, the, the Munich Agreement lasts six months. Because March of 1939, he marches without firing a shot because he threatened um, 
the Czech president who has a ner- has a nervous breakdown in Hitler's presence, by the way, <laughs> um, threatens the Czech president with bombing Prague if you don't hand over the rest of your country, which has no ethnic Germans in it. Right. And, right, that's, right. and that's when the game is up. Hitler, so March 1939, he marches into the rest of Czechoslovakia. Appeasement ends. Mm-hmm. Chamberlain uh, extends a guarantee to Hitler's obvious next victim, which is Poland. Yep. You invade Poland, that means war with us. That's when that's when the appeasement policy ends. Day late and a dollar short. Yeah. Right. But better late than never. So Neville does smell the coffee. But by this point, Hitler doesn't believe that threat. Yeah, and, because and he's he's gotten what he wants. He's gotten, he's played them time after time after time. He thinks that the, he, that in August 1939, he refers to his opponents, the British and French, he refers to them as little worms. <laughs> he says, I saw them, at, he's, he's talking with his generals, and he says, I saw them at Munich, they're little worms. And basically, he thought he could invade Poland and that they wouldn't declare war on him. Wow. It's, it's almost like a sort of a boy who cried wolf kind of thing. Yeah, eventually. And then September 3rd, of course, the British and the French declare war on him, and he's, from all accounts, sort of shocked by that. Mm-hmm. Now, I think he still thought things were going to work out because he does clobber Poland in, in six months. Yeah. But that look at the timing. 1939 is when he gets his war. Mm-hmm. The German generals had been promised that they would be, wouldn't start a war until they had completely rearmed, built the German Navy, yep. Air Force, and Army back up to the strength they thought was necessary to conquer Europe. By their timetable, this should have started in 1943. Oh my goodness. So if you're a German, if you're a German general with any sort of clear head, you're horrified in September 1939 because this is way premature, especially yeah. if you look at like the German Navy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. U-boat force isn't nearly big enough. Its surface fleet is a joke. They've started to, started to talk about building an aircraft carrier, but they don't have any. Right. German Air Force not nearly as big as what the Luftwaffe thinks is necessary. Mm-hmm. So that's four years ahead of time. Wow, so they're going in with so, the with the B yeah, team. Yeah, pretty much. Now, once again, they do pretty well for a long, long time, yeah, and they yeah, do yeah, do yeah. some catching up, but it's a fascinating what if. What if Hitler's a little more patient and waits, waits till 1943 to launch his war? Now, other people are rearming at the same time. Those sure. Are, those are not sort of static targets, including the British, by the way. Yeah, yeah. And there are people who argue that Munich, in that sense, was a good thing. That they gave them time because the British, the British, the British do a lot of rearming between fall of thirty eight and fall of thirty nine. And if you look at how close something like the Battle of Britain was in nineteen forty, nineteen forty one, you can argue that those additional Spitfires and Hurricanes were crucial. Absolutely. So maybe that was you know maybe that kind of a good thing. Right. But um, it it is really easy to sort of um, criticize the appeasers in retrospect. Yeah. And and I'm amazed even in our politics today. Oh, all the time, people say they use the sort word appeasement. Every yeah. conflict, in every co- potential conflict or conflict, there is a Hitler, and we should be Churchill. Yeah, and yeah. everything is forced into that pattern. And if you're not on board with what's going on, then you're a Chamberlain. Exactly. If, and yeah. if you're not, you know, if you're not arguing in favor of bigger defense budgets or arguing for a military solution to something, you're an appeaser. Why aren't you Churchill? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, so I think we are. I'm now, by the way, I'm generally a fan of Churchill's. Mm-hmm. He was the right guy in the right time in the spring of 1940, but. We go a little overboard. Maybe we should do a Churchill show. In addition <laughs> to all the quotes. Good, yeah, the quotes are easy. <laughs> right, the, the quotes Churchill. are easy. But, well, um, well, certainly what happens, I mean, once the war starts, everything intensifies, including the myth-making and the, or, or, the, or the myth generation, the generations or, of, of myths coming out of the war from 39 onwards. We've got a whole new episode available to us, but just looking at the ways in, with, right. in which Hitler myths 
right. in World War II. Right. Can, World can War I actually invented. add one more point uh, yeah, 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 before yeah, we wrap yeah. this up? And that is when war breaks, when Hitler uh, uh, invades Poland yeah. in uh, September 1st, 1939, people should keep in mind that the reaction of the German public was incredibly subdued. Oh, no kidding. And this the is chick- sort of this ties into my come home to roost. Like, well, oh, wait a minute. And this is plays in my earlier point, which is your average rank and file German remembers World War One, and not right, only the huge right, loss right, of right. life, but just the privation, right? The, the 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 food lines and the food riots and all that stuff. And they love what Hitler's doing, but by no means do they want to get into another war. Partly because they're worried that Germany's going to lose this war. Yeah, yeah, sure. And there, there's, there's like, compare 1939 with 1914. Yeah. 1914, which, by the way, it's my understanding from people like Michael Nyberg that that it's exaggerated how much enthusiasm there was. But there was some enthusiasm. Mm-hmm. There were a lot of crowds mm-hmm. and people throwing flowers at the troops going off to the front and we'll be home by Christmas and it'll be awesome. I mean, there was sort of this romance of war in 1914. In 1939, nowhere do you see this sort of, thank God we've gone to war. This will be awesome. Oh. And, not, and even not in Hitler's Germany. Oh, now, now I was never taught that there was a great... Upswelling, oh, the right. swelling of support, but I, would, I think I would have just assumed that there was because right. he was such a good propagandist. Now, after the early victories, especially yeah. after the relatively painless victory over France in June of 1940, yeah. there was a lot of enthusiasm huh. and a lot of relief because people, you know, they worried about the war, but now it seems like we're winning. And well, throughout history, including in our country, when you're winning, you forget yeah. about a lot of other Absolutely. things. <laughs> Well, there you go, Buzzcutters. Look what we have to look what look what we have to look forward to, so to speak. I hate to say look forward to about a <laughs> not war, in, not but, in that way. <laughs> but but into, you know the whole sorts of complications. Now we we you know, bust miss on the show, but we also want to lay out the complications of all these things. And exactly what you're saying is is if in effect going to happen in in thirty nine forty forty one is 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 exactly what we're going to talk about in in the next episode. So are you will I mean you willing to come back for another episode on the I'll, I'll have to consult with my staff, but I think I yeah, can make you it happen. Fit it into your calendar? Okay. <laughs> well, thanks again for coming and Buzzkillers tune in not only next week, but following weeks because Professor Nash will be back in the institute, back in the bunker, busting Hitler miss. See you later. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. 
No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.